Good evening, everyone, both those of you who are here virtually and those of you who are here in the actual world. My name is Walter Armbrust. I'm chairing tonight's seminar, and it is a great pleasure because our speaker is Marilyn Booth, who I've known since forever. And she is the Khaled bin Abdullah Al Saud Professor for the Study of the Contemporary Arab World. That's her official title. She has extremely broad research interests. I'll mention just a few of them. She's written on early feminism and national, nationalist and Islamist discourses in the Arabic-speaking world, autobiography and biography in the Arabophone and Francophone Middle East and North Africa, literature and politics of Arabic colloquials, and the history of Arabic periodicals, particularly the satirical press and the women's press. And these are just a few. Marilyn often describes herself more as a historian who works on literature than as a literary scholar, but really she's just an exemplary scholar in terms of the interdisciplinary scope of her research and publishing. In addition to her literary and historical scholarship, she also does literary translation. Among her literary translations, I think she has at least a dozen of them. 18. Um, 18. Okay. <laughs> I only found a dozen on there. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be busy a lot there. The one that I'll mention is Celestial Bodies by the Omani writer Jokha Harifi, which won the International Man Booker Prize in 2019, which is one of major literary prizes in the world, which is given to a work of fiction translated into English and awarded equally to the translator and the author. She's published too many works linked to tonight's lecture to mention all of them. I can't even begin to summarize the articles, book chapters, and edited volumes. There are two monographs that she's published since 2008 that I will mention. One is Classes of Ladies of Cloistered Spaces, Writing Feminist History Through Biography and Fendi's Sect in Egypt. And the other is May Her Likes Be Multiplied, Biography and Gender Politics in Egypt. Tonight's lecture builds on both works and is a book launch. She's been working on this book for a very long time. It's unfortunate for those of you who are here virtually because there is going to actually be drinks after the lecture. Um, <laughs> we'll just have to have virtual drinks, I guess. <laughs> um, th this is an intellectual biography of, of the early Arabic feminist, Zainab Fawaz, who lived in the latter half of the 19th century. And it's a study of her life in Ottoman Syria and Egypt in the context of Arabophone debates on gender, modernity, and the good society. The title of the lecture is the same as the book, The Career and Communities of Zanip Fawaz, Feminist Thinking in Thundasek, Egypt. It's an honor to introduce someone who really is a giant in our field and in our community. And so I give you Professor Marilyn Booth. Thank you very much, Walter, for that extremely generous introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. I feel like I'm among family. That's not only because I've known Walter and Michael for a very long time, but it's just wonderful to be back in the Middle East Center where so much of my intellectual formation has happened. And I'm delighted that this is the first in-person lecture that we've been able to have. I haven't, of course, given a lecture in person for over two years, so I hope I can still remember how to do it. <laughs> see how it goes. In the spring of 1900, a furious reaction erupted in the Egyptian press in response to the Arabic translation of French foreign minister Gabriel Hanateau. Titled simply L'Islam, the French original was aimed at a French audience, 
and published in a Paris magazine. It combined an odd, ill-informed doctrinal diatribe with worries about France's imperial future in Africa. For readers in Egypt, it represented the worst of European imperialist Orientalism. Famously, Egypt's Mufti, Mohammed Abdu, responded immediately and eloquently. Many lesser known figures also responded. One intervention that has gone unnoticed was an article by Zeynep Pogaz that appeared in the nationalist newspaper El Louet on the 28th of April, 1900. And I just want to say before going on, all the quotations in this talk are translation, my translations from the Arabic. So if you have any questions about them, feel free to ask. Also, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's up there sort of for you to get a taste, but I'll read parts of these quotations. So she says, when El Mu'ayyid appeared on that particular day, we were at a women's gathering. One of the ladies picked it up and began to read it out loud as we listened until we got to the point where Kimon was quoted, including his comments on the tomb of the prophet and his accusations against the noble religion and so forth. When we heard this nonsensical raving, the sense of pride, honor, and self-respect was erupting so strongly in the ladies' heads that they wished this would incite a war in which they could fight. After some trenchant comments on the political and moral bankruptcy of the local male leader in the league, the author returns to her site of enunciation, the women's meeting. Likely, she said, someone can come from the hands of women to resolve such a thorny problem, one which is stymied men, when women are inside hijab and have no ability to loosen and bind anything, in other words, to take political decisions. I say, yes, we are inside hijab and we're very few at present, but a rainstorm starts with a single drop. The article went on to hail women's collective work. The women became determined to raise their sons and daughters on religious principles and national local manufacturers, etc. The assemblage of women determined that women would refrain from imitating the Europeans as much as possible and none would deal with Europe's merchants. They would do business only with Muslim merchants. They would implant this virtue in the hearts of their daughters, and thus before a quarter century passes, no trace of European commerce will be found in the East. Now this was years before the famous call for a boycott by post-war nationalist women in Egypt. So it's, and it's not something that I've ever heard, seen referred refer to. Note the language, what was probably a gathering of friends in a home takes on political heft and a village making a formal declaration of boycott. It's emblematic of this author's bold style, though we do not know whether a boycott was actually attempted. My book addresses the career of a writer whose views are strikingly distinct amongst the Arabophone elites of her era. I consider Zainab Fawaz's writings and her other actions within the context of gender as a key axis of the 19th century Arabic knowledge movement known then and later as the Mahta and also with reference to emerging anti-colonial forces. The book traces one individual's tenacious engagement with contentious issues while embedding an individual's body of work within the communities of discourse, of personal connection and political negotiation in which its author moved, spoke, and at times maintained silence. What I want to do is talk a little bit about her life history, which was unusual, and move from that into the whole problem of sources when one is trying to write a biography. I then want to talk about some keywords, which are part of my title, the book title, and to use that as a way to talk about what she wrote, focusing on her essays. I'd love to talk about the end of 
her life. It's absolutely fascinating. And it's also very problematic in a different way for a biographer, but I may not have time. So you're very welcome to ask me about that in the questions and answers if you're interested. So I now want to put up another quotation from a letter that Foez sent to the Beirut newspaper, Le Saint in March 1892, eight years before she was writing in El Lourette. I'll just read parts of this. To the director of Dorita Lissanid Head, I cannot express clearly enough my gratitude for your hard work to make women standing visible in society. Speaking for my sisters, women of the East, I thank you for your efforts, and I thank women of the West for their striving towards excellence, surpassing the men in many areas. God willing, we'll get to the same place. Amongst countless writings on every branch of knowledge, all I found concerning our women were a few utterances by unknown women or bits of poetry secluded in remote corners of an ancient book that no one reads. Vitally concerned, I began considering what it would take to create a book that would recognize and illuminate the excellences of women. I found no solution but to compose and compile their life histories, and she goes on and talks about that. I moved from talk to action, including everyone. But since this is the age of knowledge, an important era in women's education, I wanted to adorn the brow of my book with all the life histories I could get. Through Lysen of Hell, I call on my sisters who wish to have their life histories in my book to send them to me in my brother, Muhammad Ali Bawez, lawyer in Cairo. The book she speaks of was a massive biographical dictionary of world women in Arabic, which saw the light of day in 1895. My previous monograph, the one that Walter mentioned there that came out in 2015, was a book history of this book of her. So you can see how obsessed I am with this woman, two monographs on her. She deserves it. The letter, her letter was a call for contributions and an ad for her project. But it can also be seen as an implicit argument for women's writing autobiographically, highlighting their knowledge in an era when elite women's names were most often not made public, let alone their lives. Understated this may have been, but the summons was still a provocative suggestion about women as public figures. Fawaz's own assumption of a role in public life is a reason that I've long been fascinated by her. But the letter also conjures a paradox Boaz's own biography does not appear in her volume or really most anywhere else. In fact, we know very little that is certain about Boaz's life, and there are competing narratives. This biographical elusiveness from a woman who spent so much time compiling biographies of others has certainly been a shaping factor in the way that I have written this book. Her life was starkly different to the lives of most of the small group of published Arabophone female writers in Egypt and the Ottoman Empire in the 1890s. First, Boaz was born in Jebel Amel, South Lebanon, in a Shi'i community that was on the fringes of Arab Ottoman life by virtue of geography and communal belonging. But it was also a community long known for scholarship and literary prowess. As a Shi'i, in her adult life in Egypt, Boaz was of an absolutely tiny religious minority, and it isn't surprising that her Shia background is barely visible in her writings. Second, Boaz did not have a wealthy or learned birth family behind her, though she and her brother clearly had some cultural access. As a young girl, she became attached to the local feudal ruler's household, and she got her first literary training from this emir's accomplished spouse, Fultima bint al-Assad. This is another unusual feature 
to be literarily trained then by a female poet in the south of Lebanon. It's not clear when, how, or why Boaz emigrated from Lebanon to Egypt. There seems to have been a disastrous early marriage to an employee of the Emir and a subsequent divorce. Some sources claim that she then married an Egyptian military man, but there's no evidence for that. And I suspect these sources imagine a female immigrating from the south of Lebanon to urban Egypt unless it involved a husband. She may have immigrated with her brother. In Cairo, she probably lived with him, and I have traced something of his lawyerly career. She began her um, published career with essays in major Arabic newspapers and came to the attention of another newspaper editor and began publishing in his journal. He's a rather fascinating, somewhat pathetic um, and understudied figure who I spent, also spent a lot of time on in the book, Hassan Hosni of Tuwairani, who published many of her essays in his newspaper, Anil. I asked why she did publish there, and I scrutinized Anil's gender politics, as I do that of the more prominent newspapers, Edmund Ayyad and Edmund and the Senate Hal, in which Boaz also published. I also follow her work for the first Arabic magazine for women produced by women, which I see as a collective project. Boaz went on to publish her biographical dictionary, many newspaper essays, two novels, and a play, well known at least to a very small community of newspaper and book readers. When she died in 1914, the obituary in Al Ahram was unusually long for a female, but it included nothing about her life trajectory including her quite fascinating later life, which included um, another marriage and divorce and a stint as part of the Hadith spy network. After her death, her voice seemed to disappear in print, except for republications of entries from her biographical dictionary. So she's a fascinating, intriguing figure biographically. My book is not a traditional biography because so much is unknown, though I do do a lot of sleuthing and speculation. In fact, the conflicting narratives that we have immediately raise a frustrating question. When was she born? The dates usually given are 1846 and 1860, and those are a generation apart. They would mean different things for her relationships as a child and as an adult. For example, her mentor, Fatima Benzel Assad, was born in 1840. Were they near contemporaries or 20 years apart in age? It makes a big difference. To make things more interesting, I suspect that later in life, she rewrote her own biography, though it was never attributed to her. A brief biographical notice surfaced in two texts in 1905 and 1906. I'm not gonna read it, but just to say this smooth CV-like narrative has her born in 1860, emigrating to Alexandria as a child with her family, being educated by sheikhs and turning into a writer. Nothing about marriages, divorces, slightly problematic journeys and little on spine. With all of this uncertainty, what does one do? Partly because of the lacunae, but also because this is the way I work, I try to imagine Poez and to read her within various communities of discourse while not ignoring her life. This brings us to the terms I use in the book's title, which signal my approach. So I'm going to start with feminist thinking and then move into community, and I may or may not have time to get to career. What feminism means in a 19th century context anywhere in the world is a question that has exercised many scholars. Like feminism itself, the answers are varied and multifaceted. 
drawing on alternative terminologies sensitive to the many ways women and men have sought to think about gender differentiation, its sources, and its effects. Some historians avoid using the term prior to the 20th century, since feminism only emerged in the context of French activism in the late 19th century as a term. Others point to the multiple meanings the label had for those who did adopt it. Scholars of European colonialisms emphasize the imperial uses to which feminism has been put, while historians of North American feminisms excavate the exclusionary racist outlooks of many white feminists, individuals, and groups. There's no single way to think feminism for any context. Scholarship on Egypt in this period emphasizes women's contributions to a vigorous public debate and to activity underpinning the emergence of a feminist movement in writing and publishing, education, benevolence, and politics. It's now recognized that before the 1899 book of male lawyer, which has so long been seen as initiating a debate, long before that, women and men were already deeply engaged in the question of gender norms and gender-defined rights. Studies also highlight the importance of the woman question to the formation of Egyptian anti-colonial nationalism and associated modernist discourses that critically assessed Euro-American societies. Reformers sought legal and attitudinal changes to family structure as essential to a homegrown modernity. They did this partly through an emerging discourse of companionate marriage, which was meant to encourage notions of gender complementarity. Women embraced nationalist projects, but not always on the terms articulated by masculine elite leaderships. If women worked in anticipation of the nation, and if what they said publicly was aimed at reassuring audiences of their dedication to the nation, women's agendas were not only about the nation, nor were women in accord with each other. Confronting points in the discursive formation I study, I find it useful to think feminist as an analytic concept rather than as a label that captures what I think Boas had to say. So I adopt an analytics of what I call feminist thinking that's narrower than the descriptive usage the term feminism often denotes. This is not to suppress or denigrate alternative activisms or to deny that their work changed women's and men's lives beneficially. But we can only understand the extent and the limits of change if we appreciate the range of views in one discursive context. For Egypt and the Ottoman Empire in the 1890s, such distinctions have remained, I believe, underanalyzed. Addressing symptoms of structural gender-defined inequality in a hierarchical system, feminist thinking in the way that I use it goes beyond the symptomatic to recognize and challenge underlying attitudes or belief systems, whether defined as patriarchal, male-dominant, or masculinist. And also to unpack social sexual structures that produce these symptomatic manifestations. Feminist thinking in this sense is distinguished from gender reform, which seeks to improve conditions for girls and women, but without critique of the underlying system. Reformers might regard such changes as necessary to modernize or even perpetuate the patriarchal system, leaving its structure and its assumptions in place. These assumptions include a notion of natural gender, the centrality of paternity in property transfer, the patrolling and attempted management of women's sexuality through formulations of honor to assure paternity, but also to discipline females and to absolve powerful males. 
It also includes the subsumption of family members under the headship of the father, the rejection of women's authority as formal community leaders, and their exclusion from political decision-making, buttressing the notion of the male head of household as sole political subject. It's very striking when one reads the books and articles on women by male reformers of this time and later, that for most of them, their notions of learned domesticity and companionate marriage envisioned no changes in structures of authority. Thus, feminist thinking in the sense I use it is not only an ethos of care and betterment, although that's part of it, nor a struggle for equal rights. It's a politics grounded in an analysis of power in society, of how assigned gender as a fundamental human classificatory system is a structure of hierarchy, wherein the female is the subordinated term. It is also a recognition that the most basic privilege of being classified male is the assumed right to define as well as to maintain that relationship of power. In other words, to declare what a woman is. In Arabic, as in other languages, the woman question was a rubric under which multiple issues that were also very much about men were discussed, but the explicit focus was usually femaleness. And the notion of the male person as insan, humanity unmarked by gender, was one of the mechanisms by which this definition of authority was and is maintained. So feminist thinking entails not only the insistent display of patriarchy as a system that privileges male authority, but recognition of the disciplinary means to maintain compliance from persuasion, psychological pressure and resort to tradition, to legal structures, to coercive acts, and the threat of violence. What I'm saying, these are not new insights. I mean, I'm certainly not the first to define patriarchy in this way, by no means. But I think that then there's been insufficient attention to the range of views within the early Arabophone debates on gender. And I think it's important to try to understand that range of views and what they were getting at. Zainab Fawaz wrote on the same topics as did others the necessity for a girl's education, shortcomings in the marital regime, the durability of beliefs harmful to personal and family health, and men's bad behaviors, as well as their hypocrisies. She wrote on issues of social justice and women's waged work. And I have chapters in the middle of my book on each of these issues. And I've tried very hard to make my chapters standalone chapters so that nobody has to read the whole book. So I realize it's a very big book. But unlike most, Boaz's writings comprised a critique of the prevailing understandings of sex gender as defining individuals' social possibilities. And her essays argue that keeping the relationship in place required and encouraged men's ongoing tactics of psychological and physical coercion. In one of her earliest published essays, I translate the title as Felicity Does Not Arise from Material Plenitude or Prosperity, Boaz began with strong characterization of married women's lives. She did so to reprise and reject an argument made by those who opposed change in marriage practices, girls' education, and female mobility. The standard version meant, if girls were educated, they would become dissatisfied with their expected lot in life. They would be too uppity to do housework, too occupied with purchasing luxury goods and initiating social engagements to be thrifty wives and good mothers. Fawaz caustically rewrote that argument in order to demolish it. With her provocative gloss, she suggested that the roots of this discontent, thus the reasons for denying females an education, 
were something else. So she sets it up here and then she says, the husband's argument is that if women learn the true nature of society, the circumstances of various classes of people and the way things are at present, the women would become, the husbands assert, malcontent with their lives for they would detest the rule of their despotic husbands and the knowledge and learning would lead them to break the rod of obedience and emerge from the noose of bondage to the arena. Of course, it was not what the husbands were saying, but it's, it's her unpacking of, of the argument they're making. She used hyperbole tactically. Her language mocked the scare discourse of those opposing girls' education. At the same time, the text created a dissonance between these opponents' use of ethoria, freedom, as a euphemism for young women's alleged sexual spatial improprieties, freedom as licentiousness, and her own understanding of freedom as a space of self-realization and a necessary correlate of felicity, which she talks about later in the same essay, saying it means the ability to exercise one's intelligence for the good of self, family, and society. I argue in the book that this understanding of Korea is also fundamental to her fiction. Perhaps Bawes's hyperbole was not hyperbolic after all. Through an accumulating lexicon of domination and coerced subordination, her language suggested what it was that women would gain through education, not an investment in consumption or disdain for domestic work, but awareness of the despotism practiced against them in marriage and the confidence to contest its outcomes. Going further, Boaz's writings suggest she recognized the concept of a natural division of labor based on constricting women's work to family maintenance coupled with a patriarchal structure of authority could not be an adequate basis for social relations founded on mutual recognition and consent. Again, I think this distinguishes her from those who were interested in change on the ground did not see these structures as by definition coercive to women or detrimental to human relations. Many of Boaz's interlocutors espoused a different or separate but equal approach. Women's work was just as valuable as men's and it required a manifested equivalent mental and physical capabilities, but it was different work. This was the substance of a debate in print with Boaz had with Lebanese writer Hannah Kourani, who fiercely admonished women not to think about stepping over the threshold and out of domestic work and criticized British suffragists for doing so. Okay. Supported the suffragists as exerting themselves for their own futures and their nations. And she criticized women who didn't support them, implicitly including Hannah Kourani as lazy. Kourani didn't like this very much, it was a long debate. Kourani's outlook maintained a separation between feminine family-focused work and masculine work, or at least it did so ideationally. Separate spheres is a prescriptive concept, only unevenly and partially descriptive. Boaz reminded Pirani that many women in Egypt and Europe had long worked outside the home to support themselves and their families. The very division, public-private, is a fairly recent concept of European origin, birthed in the labor and spatial transformations of the Industrial Revolution and capitalist organization of relations with production, which benefited from maintaining a notion of male breadwinner with women's unwaged work in the home providing necessary support. That Egypt and the Ottoman Empire were entangled in an uneven European-led global capitalist nexus by the late 19th century 
actually worked before that, may have encouraged the grafting on of this notion of gender labor division to existing elite spatial social codes that were already well entrenched locally. But Foez's writing offers a reminder that this was not uncontested. Her final summation in the debate with Karani is perhaps her clearest statement of a non-essentialist stance that also rejected a static, ahistorical view of gender roles. And I'm sorry, again, I wish I had time to read all of these, but if I do, I'll... Foez did not contest the ongoing reality of women's and men's lives as differently cited physically and in social roles. But she rejected notions of hierarchical difference sanctioned by nature. She did not celebrate women's special qualities or argue that they were different but equal, though she did insist that women's reproductive work be respected and valued as labor. She insisted that there was no realm of work that women as a category could not perform, even as she noted that in the here and now, elite Muslim women's accustomed spatial social practices did in a practical sense bar certain kinds of work. Thus, Foes acknowledged the ongoing social consequences of sexual difference. Concepts that made feminism thinkable had emerged within the context of Western European political thought, specifically a doctrine of abstract individualism, leading in John W. Scott's well-known formulation to a constitutive paradox. The abstract individual as basis of the political self was qualified in the human world of politics through categorical exclusions, including that of females from the revolutionary political selfhood of the French Revolution or from the liberal rights-bearing subjecthood of British common law. Yet women had to appeal to that abstract rights-bearing subjecthood or that human entity on the basis of a gendered selfhood that the abstraction erased. One might argue, on the other hand, that those who base their outlooks in an Islamic ethical worldview did not face this dilemma. Rather than an abstract disembodied subject, one might seek a model in the embodied and gendered believer, equally responsible before God as addressed in the Quran. Boaz's Islamic positioning undergirded her argument for a non-patriarchal, non-essentialist viewpoint on gender, invoking the Sharia, as a universal moral guide for humankind. At the same time, and crucially, like her male reformist peers, women such as Fawez argue that law and other social institutions formulated through time via rereadings of the foundational texts of Islamic belief and practice were not divinely ordained, but were the changeable products of human intercourse. And in that way, she was very similar to some of the very well-known male Muslim modernists. Debates in Arabic on the politics of gender were entangled with and coterminous with, it's important to keep this in mind, debates occurring literally across the world. Women and men in Egypt were aware of what was going on elsewhere, of feminist and other gender activists, including anti-feminist arguments and initiatives in many places arguments were part of local discourse, no simple borrowing, but rather savvy adaptations, a kind of lateral thinking. We can appreciate gender activisms and within them feminisms as globally coeval presences while remaining sensitive to particular trajectories. Boaz perceived her actions as part of a trans-societal concern, but this does not mean she saw her interventions as derivative. It often seems to be assumed that Arab intellectuals 
borrowings from Western sources constituted new gender, and that these new ideas supported more flexible gender regimes, the whole Westernization thing, so-called, while introducing modern notions of domesticity. But this is only part of the story. Reading the Arabic press closely, it's evident that narrowly restricted, often anti-feminist or even misogynist European pronouncements on gender were consumed and translated just as avidly. Arabophon pundits who were anti-feminist cited European authorities in support of essentialist, nature-driven views about assigned gender's meanings for social organization. In an 1894 debate, which is the subject of one of my chapters, physician Amina Khouri used biomedical discourse developed in Europe to shore up a deeply conservative resistance to women's activism and even their speech. His misogynist outlook became more pronounced when women began challenging him in print. It's also been assumed, although I think recent work is changing this, that it was the Western, so-called westernized Syrian Christian immigrants who were the main conduits of these imported ideas. To the extent this is true, it's important to keep in mind that they often drew on European thinkers whose writings condoned highly patriarchal views of gender congenial to long prevalent indigenous patriarchal outlooks, often based, as was true for Europeans, on readings of the Bible. Egyptian Copts and Muslims also pervade a range of European views, but it's important to remember that identity care categories are not very useful in identifying individual stances on the meanings of gender, although an individual's background, training, and belief might inflect the vocabularies they used. So talking a little bit, moving a little bit to the question of community, placing feminism within the broader field of the woman question or more accurately, the gender question, we see that Fawaz did write on the same issues that others did, but with different emphases. On girls' education, she emphasized non-gendered aspirations for the good life, which in her view meant the educated. And as we've seen, she emphasized education as a means to know one's rights. It's just one example. She moved between incisive analysis of attitudes and calls for practical action. The latter might get women to work together. Performatively, it could su suggest they were already working together as in the 1900 Hanatil response. Her rhetoric and choice of venue sometimes targeted a female readership, sometimes a non-gendered one. In late essays, she addressed the elite men of Egypt as a category in need of self-examination. She hailed different communities of gender, of faith, of Ottoman belonging. Observing Fawaz's work in public discourse means not only considering it thematically and generically, but also considering how she mounted her arguments and to whom she was speaking, her communities of discourse. She was a forthright and often quite impolite debater in print, unusual for a woman of her milieu. I want my readers to enter the rhetorical space of that decade to sense the ways that Fawaz and many others tackle these issues. A methodology of deep listening, which is what I try to practice, requires attention to multiple and contentious discourses of keywords such as progress, civilization, rights, nature, and so forth. Listening in on the rhetorical uses of terminology, the categories through which people argued, is a reminder of the contingency and creativity of any intellectual debate, even as one also registers its conditions of possibility. 
attending to conceptual vocabularies, affective language, the uses of ambiguity, irony, and silence, means asking how writers situated themselves within certain conventions only to push against usual meanings. Also, we have to ponder how language use might intersect with gender assignment. What risks did women take in using a language of affect? Or how could women enter the language of jurisprudence, an arena almost exclusively masculine for centuries? These questions are additionally crucial because Fawaz and other women had not only to engage the gender question, but also to enact the intellectual subjectivity that some interlocutors, such as Amina Khoury, tried to deny to women. So my approach highlights her eclectic tactics, her reliance on understandings of social organization, articulated as Islamic, her knowledgeable yet original use of sources, and her bold way of engaging interlocutors. In a long-running debate with a minor official in the Customs Administration, Boaz addressed the exploitation of late versions of Islamic fiqh and its hadith sources as a patriarchal mechanism to keep women subordinate and unhappy in marriage. Boaz used logic, arguments from history, and knowledge of Islamic sources to reject Bauzi's understanding of gender as implacably hierarchized based on his reading of the creation story, the Quran's diction, and hadith. Bauzi launched his text from the notion of akhbaliya as a principle of gender hierarchy. He began to seriously, serially publish his work in the magazine Corset of the Oktat in early 1893. Very soon, Fawaz, under a pseudonym, attacked him in the same journal, initiating what became a very complicated exchange. In your newspaper, I read a piece by the distinguished writer Christina Fendi Fauzi, where he manifests his thorough partisanship towards his sex, showing his prejudice towards our women, women's sex and other matters, the truth of which I will make clear to him as long as he preserves the etiquette of written exchange. If he does not, I will abandon reason debate and renounce and reject his words openly. He proceeds to do over the next couple of months. And I'm just gonna give you, again, not reading it, but just a taste of how Boaz's responses escalated in tone and how she used satirical effect, you know, your arrogance compelled you to depart from the requirements of proper ideas. And she calls him an escalating, oh, famous scholar, you know, you are indeed the philosopher of the age and so forth. She uses this to great effect. The exchange, among other things, does show how visceral the debates over the meaning of Islamic sources to contemporary gender politics were, at least for some debaters at that time. As the debate with Gazi suggests, Communities of discourse are not always comfortable and supportive. Wherever feminism has existed, so has patriarchal backlash. Throughout Europe, the 1890s were a decade of feminist activism and therefore a backlash. That women have faced scorn and hostility for airing their ambitions is not in any simple sense about women's accession to public political rights. Surveying 19th century struggle over gendered rights in Britain, Ben Griffin argues that, quote, it was men's power in the private sphere that was perceived to be threatened by proposals to give married women the right to vote, to own property, and so forth. End of quote. Indeed, as forms of masculine authority were perceived to be weakening, the need to short up may have been felt more strongly. We see this in the 1890s Arabophone media scape as male editors who had declared themselves supportive to women's ambitions for more public engagement 
were sharply critical of women who chose to write about rights or girls' education. And they're very explicit about it. You women, we need you to write about childcare. Stop writing about rights. When in 1892, Poez argued with Hannah Pirani on the appropriateness of British women's bid for suffrage in an Egypt occupied by Britain, no one had full political rights. In a sense, this gives more significance to the perturbance that Foez's support for British suffragists stirred up. Her argument could not possibly have any foreseeable impact in the local um, political. The suggestion was too much for the liberal men who generously published women's words in their newspapers. Like members of parliament in Britain, these male Arabophone intellectuals were anxious to maintain masculine authority in and beyond the family by defining a clear sexual division of labor, including what women were allowed to write about. Thus, Beirut Citizen and Hell could not agree with Bellas on suffrage, even as the editors presented themselves as supporters of women's rights. And of course, they were the ones who defined what they meant by women's rights. Several years later, a supporter of hers, Ahmed Arif Azain, editor of Sidon's new newspaper of Arifan, celebrated the preeminence of a Jebel Ayman woman, Zainab Fawaz, amongst the published women writers of the time. But in the same breath, he chided her for having extreme views. Assuming the rightness of masculine authority necessarily meant a sanguine view of male behavior as responsible and benign. Zainab Fawaz and a few other women suggested that men's complacence about male behavior and overlooking men's actual behavior they knew the tensions between notions of what was called a companionate marriage and implacable masculine authority in the home. They knew the degree to which companionate marriage rested on female compliance. Now, I would love to talk about career, but I don't want to go on too long. So maybe I, should I just kind of wrap up at this point? It's up to you. You know, we'll, well, we'll go to the reception when you finish. So. Okay. All right, I'll just quickly say, like other writers, Foez engaged in self-promotion activities, sending her books to newspaper editors, responding promptly when a periodical got something wrong or omitted her name, and rejecting others' critiques of her view. I've given you a taste of her debating style, forceful and persistent. In later life, she negotiated restrictions on elite female seclusion, as older women, especially older single women, could do, and that's what she was. And she was a physical presence in journal offices. She had to make her own living in that time. And there's some evidence that she actually tried to do this by peddling her own books in elite households, which is quite mind-boggling, actually. Her own life did not adhere to prevailing expectations for women of her milieu. The choices she made to be single, um, writing and publishing, to lead to marriages, Actually, and just the way that she was so out there, so public, and the way she was calling on other women to be public, lead me to call her work a career. Most important, I think, is her insistence throughout that women should be public figures. She used the rhetorical conceit a number of times, addressing men as a group, of declaring that she and women generally could see the men clearly through hijab, as hijab as gender segregation as well as veiling. Through access to newspapers, through women's conversations, and through discussions with men, public life, the nation's work, was neither invisible nor inaccessible to women. Now, career, however, becomes a fixture of some irony in Foez's later life, as does visibility. 
where she became a paid informer for the palace in the last decade of her life. And ironically, the only real evidence I have of her daily life are the reports that she wrote for the palace, and they are totally fascinating. And I translate a number of them in the final chapter of my book. I can't go into it here, it's way too complicated. But basically, she was asked to spy on the elite households of various figures. And as her handler said, when he wrote to the Hadith saying, I've got this woman, I really want to hire her if it's okay with you, because he says, after all, men don't know how to keep secrets. They tell their wives everything, and for what their wives will tell her everything. And they told her a lot. This is really uncomfortable, however, as a biographer, as a feminist biographer, as somebody who identifies with with Zainab Boaz and has worked on her a long time, because at this point in her life, you see her betraying people, using girls' education cynically, and trying to draw other women into a spy network. You know, this is not really what a feminist biographer kind of wants to find. But I think in a way it's really good because not only is it fascinating and it shows how important households and women were to the political scene, and it also shows how much the women knew. She transcribes conversations among the women about the latest newspapers that have started publishing and who runs them. And these women know exactly what's going on. But it also makes one you know, think about the messiness of life and the fact that we cannot idealize our subjects and we have to take in all these parts of life and acknowledge that messiness and think about it. So in sum, Bawes' feminist thinking, framed partly within an Islamic ethical worldview, was distinct not only from prevailing separate but equal views of gender abilities, but also from prevailing modernist views, imposing a non-essentialist, open-ended notion of gender. This is really quite remarkable for that period um, anywhere, not just in Egypt. Her approach is particularly striking, given the durability of a notion of fixed, biologically determined gender assignment, but still includes debates on Islam and gender so often, not always, but so often. Her rhetoric was not about identity, but about positioning. It was less about Foez herself than about her sense of audience and the persona she wanted to project. And actually, she varies her lexicon according to the audience. She's, she's very savvy about that. On one level, she used an Islamic lexicon to describe aspects of a particular everyday society and practice. On another level, she applied it as a universal or potentially shareable grounding for the good society. On occasion, she chose terms associated with Islamic practice to characterize European and non-Muslim women. I'm not suggesting that this was cynical. Surely it was founded in personal belief, but it was still a rhetorical political choice that it became more pronounced as a speaking position and as a collective identity in her late writings provides a graphic example of how European Islamophobic discourse around 1900 helped to create the Muslim solidarity that this same discourse so deplored. I've only been able to give you a taste of Zainab Prowez's work and life, and I haven't even touched on her novels or her play. But I hope this suggests the vitality and intensity of late Ottoman, including Egyptian, intellectuals' engagements with questions of gender's meaning as central to understandings of political and social organization in a changing world. Of gender assignment, which Boaz accused the misogynist doctor and the of mislabeling as, quote, 
this tyranny that you call nature, end of quote, in one of her many contributions to public debate. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, I, I neglected to mention at the beginning, perhaps because I was dazzled by the presence of a live audience for the first time in two years, that those of you who are attending remotely can ask questions by using the Q&A function on Zoom. And so if you type a question to there, I will try to read it out. And if you want to be anonymous, then say so. Otherwise, I will identify you when I read your question. I, I have a question about her she background. I mean, in my you know, fairly contemporary experience, I've sometimes been taken aback by the negative attitudes expressed towards Shi's by Egyptians who had never actually met a real Shi person. Mm -hmm. um, I'm guessing that in the late 19th, early 20th century, things were very different, but I'm wondering, you know, sort of what level of awareness there was of her background and whether it mattered to people, and if so, how? And I was actually also wondering if being from the background gave her a kind of insider outsider status, which perhaps lent itself to things like espionage, but also lent itself to things like her relatively radical positions. Mm -hmm. issues. Those are all really good questions. And I've wondered about them a lot. The only place that I've seen where her she background comes in explicitly in her writings is in her biographical dictionary. There are actually more biographies of either Shiite or proto-Shi'i or, or Alids, you know, supporters of Ali, than you might expect. And whenever she mentions the name Muawiyah, she says, you know, she either says, you know, Allah Yalamu or, or you know, Malone, the Malone um, Muawiyah. So there's a little bit of a, a thing there, but you know, it's it's pretty pretty minor. Um, it's really hard to know how much people knew and what they thought. And in some ways, in some cases, it seems that people even assumed that she was Egyptian, which, you know, then you might think, well, this kind of suggests that maybe she did immigrate pretty early if she sounded, you know, it's one of these many question marks that we have. It also may be because she wasn't, these may have been people who didn't hear her voice. You know, after all, she was sitting at home writing and sending things to the newspapers, but, even a couple of these newspaper editors kind of assume that she's Egyptian or seem to think so. And so it's very, there's just, and in none of the biographies is there anything. And she is celebrated, as I mentioned, the editor in Sidon, in Slida, you know, he celebrates her in his journal, which is a journal of she history and identity. But I'm not think I don't think people in Egypt were really reading that. And so I'm not sure how many people really, really did know. And then, you know, what difference did it make? Who knows? I mean, it's a big question mark also. She, here she is with all these quite radical views. She was also monolingual. She didn't read any European languages. I'm not suggesting that it would have to come from Europe, but I mean, it's just that she's, she's somebody who you might not expect this of. Did, did that have had something to do with having this somewhat unorthodox background did it have anything to do with being she? I can't, I don't argue that it does because I have no, you know, I, it's just too speculative. There's just no indication, but it's it's interesting to think about. Sorry, that's not a very good answer, but it's the best I can do. Yes, it's um... I want to tag along with that question actually, because it reminds me of Jamal uh, Adnani, for example. Yeah. First, I should say, really yeah. wonderful 
So generally, the money is one of these things in the biographical collections of Nishi. And I believe there's some speculation about whether it was to make his possible palatable to the Sunday audience and Sunday audience. I also want the Nabila Zainuddin is fascinating to she proves. And as far as I can tell, her sort of participation in those debates in the early 20th century uh, as a, just a Muslim, I mean, she, she seems to be fully participating in uh, Sunni debates as much as any other debates. And I, I just wonder, are these identities becoming more salient now? I have a similar experience to Walter about going there and, yeah. Yeah, I, I think these are good questions. I, I think it would take a lot more. It would take some, some real collective research, I think, to think more about these. I, I think they're really important questions. I mean, you know, maybe both that these identities weren't maybe as salient then, but at the same time, maybe they did give somebody more of an insider outsider perspective that made it easier to kind of step back and see things. I mean, that's, that's you know, that's, that's quite possible. Um, it would be great to have some kind of collective research project where we could look at all these figures and just, you know, try to pick some of this apart and look at some of their writings and think, well, you know, is there a way in which we can see these as somehow linked in to these, these identities? So, you know, I, I would love to explore that more. On the other hand, as you may have gathered from my paper, I'm very wary of sort of linking an identity because that so often is done. You know, I'm so sick of this, like, oh, the westernized Syrian Christians did this and the Muslims did that. Well, I'm sorry, it's not that straightforward. And so I, I'm a little bit, but I do think these are absolutely fascinating questions and especially these kind of people coming from these various kinds of minority backgrounds, what does that give them? So again, I, I don't have more of an answer, but I think it's a great question to think about. Let me read one of the online questions. This is from Rosa Marks. Her question is, first of all, she says, thank you so much for your talk. I was just wondering, do you think Fawaz's and Amin's conceptions of modern woman and modern gender relations had a positive effect on Egyptian women as, as a whole? Which I, I take it as kind of a, a legacy question that mm -hmm. was her longer mm -hmm. legacy. That is also an extremely um, good and difficult question. As I said early on, you know, she kind of disappears from view after her death except that quite a few writers go on using entries from her biographical dictionary and reproducing those. So you see those and you see them not only in Arabic, you see them in Turkish, for instance. I mean, it's, it's, really, uh, it's really great. And I'm not sure, I, I need to do more thinking about her legacy. I, originally I was gonna do that in this book, but I kind of ran out of steam, uh, it was already too long. And I also kind of felt maybe it's just good to end with her death. Um, let's, you know, leave it there. And I think one thing to think about is that, so she died a few months before World War I started. And after the war, things had changed much and there was a whole new generation of activists. And also I think because she wasn't Egyptian, she kind of wasn't remembered in the same way that some of the Egyptian figures such as Aisha Taimur and Malakatni Nasif were remembered. It's really hard to know. I wish I knew more about the impact, but there isn't, unfortunately, there isn't really any evidence that people were reading her after the war. So part of me, as much as I think she's amazing and she's worth studying, you know, there is always that 
if she's not, you know, if her work doesn't last. But I do suspect that probably at least for the relatively small number of, of activists, probably her work was significant. And in that sense, we might see a longer kind of influence. But I can't point to any very specific way. And in fact, I think, you know, she's much more radical in her thinking than a lot of the debates that have gone on since then. Hi, thank you for the great talk. Um, I was just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on how wide vision is read outside of Egypt and the world. Yeah. Again, I don't know, and this is always, you know, when one is a text at that in that period, readerships are very hard to parse. She did write in, um, she probably was read to some extent because some of these journals that she wrote in, we know they circulated outside of Egypt and even outside of the Arab world. In fact, you know, El Mu'ayyad was always having problems with um, the British not allowing it into India or, and the French not allowing it into Algeria. So we know there were attempts and we do know that people um, elsewhere did read these. And some people in Europe were reading these, these journals because you get letters coming in, you know, I, I'm a reader of yours, I live in London and here. Now, of course, they may not really live in London, but still. So now, of course, I can't say for sure if they were reading her, but they were definitely, there were, you know, these, these newspapers were circulated. And one thing that is really interesting about her is that she definitely had a sense of getting herself out there. You know, she wanted, it's clear that she wanted to be in the major newspapers. And she probably published in Emile, both because she, you know, it was a congenial place and its editor really became kind of a mentor to her, you know, and also because he probably just gave her more space. We don't know in terms of the other editors, did they say, oh, well, we've published you once or twice, um, that's enough. Or, oh, we didn't really hear essay on how wonderful it is for women to be single. So we're not gonna publish anymore. We don't, we don't know. We do know with Le Seine and Hev, the Beirut newspaper, that the Ottoman censors in about probably late 1894, early 1895, actually come to the offices of Le Saint-Vahel and they say, we've got all these articles by, you know, with women's names on them. Are these really by women? And the editor says, oh yes. And he says, we'll just stop it because women should not be writing these things. And it's, and, and I had, before I found that, um, that source, I had wondered because there is a point where Le Saint-Vahel, suddenly there seem to be no women. And you're like, what's going on? And it was, it is, Around the same time that El Petit, the first women's magazine, which I also talk about a lot in the book, got started. So you think, well, maybe these women just kind of migrated, you know, from Los Angeles Hell. But it seems there was also there was also a push. So I think they were being read, but it was not an easy kind of situation. And of course, we have to keep in mind that the numbers of literate people were small. On the other hand, newspapers did get read out loud, as we see in that wonderful vignette where she's talking about the women reading of Ma'ayat. So, you know, it's hard to know. I think some people did, but again, I have no, you know, I don't have any sort of like letter to an editor saying, I read Zainab Fawaz. I mean, other people talk about in, the, in other journals, they talk about, oh, you know, we read what the wonderful, Fawaz wrote, but again, you don't know how seriously to take that really, you know, it's because this is also part of a, a sort of culture of mutual pats on the back among journalists and, you know, the small number, they're always either, they're either praising each other or they're totally casting insults. I mean, there's like nothing in between. So, so it's very hard to know how seriously to take some of that.
But she also featured a couple of times in Labiba Hashim's magazine, Fatah uh, Dushar, and that was a magazine that got around. I mean, it, it definitely got all over the Ottoman Empire. It got to Latin America. It probably got to parts of North America. So she would have been read by some people. I wish I knew more. With, with more questions uh, coming in from our remote audience, although some of them are questions we've already dealt with, but I'll, I'll at least read the names of the people who are asking. Suzanne Kosman, again, wants to know how close were Toaz's ties to her native Lebanon after she left, and what mm -hmm. kind of influences did her writing have outside of Egypt? Randy de Gilem says, wonderful talk. Mm -hmm. Marilyn, definitely is, Zainab Toaz is feminist in so many ways. I'm wondering about her relations with rural women in Egypt and her network working with other women within Egypt and neighboring Arab countries. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had one question also from Campbell Padgett about her spying. And his question was whether she did it for financial exigency, as he says, for money, mm -hmm. or did she have some higher motive for mm -hmm. doing it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Sorry, the first question was. Well, there's two. There's there's two more questions the, about the her reach, essentially, how far yeah. her yeah. her influence went outside of I Egypt. One Randy, one with Lebanon from Suzanne Kosman. Oh right, oh, and, sorry. Then one yeah. from Randy right. Gillum okay. asking yeah. that same question, but also whether she had any discernible impact in rural Egypt. Yes. Okay. In terms of Lebanon, that's a really fascinating question again because she she never went back to Jebel Amr as far as we know. She did a couple of times, people in family came to Cairo and she apparently saw them. But there is, there's a whole tragic sub-layer to that family as well, which I'm not gonna go into. She was, this editor I mentioned, um, Arafa Zane, was very interested in her and he published a number of her works and he published several biographies, although these are part of the, the problematic. I mean, I don't know, you know, it's like one of my sources, but it contradicts other sources. But anyway, so he was very keen that people in Lebanon should know about her. And I think she did become a little bit of an icon there. But as I said, at the same time, you know, he praised her for being, you know, oh, she's writing and she's made Jabal Amr famous, but she has such extreme views, you know. So, so there's this kind of, um, this kind of double-edged and then also she, I mentioned a second marriage and she actually, this is also interesting. She went to Damascus. She contracted a marriage by mail, M -A -I -L. online, well, M-A-I-L-N-M-A-L-E, you know, online dating. Um, she married without having met him, um, a guy named Adib Nazmi, who was, was a kind of minor writer, journalist, and a civil servant and she married him and went. And so the contract was already made when she was still in Alexandria and he was there. She went to join him. The marriage only lasted about two and a half years and there are various things that are said about it. One is that he forgot to mention a couple of details for her, like the fact that he was married to three other women <laughs> um, <laughs> and that he expected her to apparently to educate the daughters of one of the other wives. <laughs> And then, oh, and also that she she went kind of crazy because they were in Damascus part of the time, but he actually was a civil servant in a small village in the Hauran for um, for some of this time, and she could not get Egyptian newspapers in the Hauran, and she really hated that. So she ended up demanding a divorce and going back 
to Cairo, but she did have, while she was in, the reason I'm mentioning this is while she was in Damascus, she apparently did have a sort of small salon that men came to and, you know, as was true of the other salons, some of the other salons we know at the time, she would sit behind a screen um, and, you know, whatever. So she at least was known to some people. Um, we don't know how widely. And Lebanese feminists since have been very pleased to be able to claim her as, you know, a native daughter and um, to, to see her as a forebearer. So she definitely, there's, I mean, when I say the legacy question is, it is really tricky um, because early on, I don't know, but she's become now, she's become now more of a figure and people want to claim her and, and so forth. So, Randy, thank you for coming. Um, relations with rural women. Um, this is really interesting too. I think more than relations with rural women, she was, she definitely, I don't know how, how much, of a sort of personal contact this was, but she wrote about urban working women um, a number of times and about the plight of servants. So again, unlike most of the other people work, um, writing on gender at that time, she really shows a pretty deep sympathy at least with working class. And, and she also talks about rural women, you know, and, and, and she does this over and over again to say, you know, stop talking about, um, women sitting at home because most women in Egypt don't, they're out working. So she definitely had a, a sense of women, you know, rural and, and urban working class women as an important, you know, as a really significant group that she cared about and she very sympathetically about. The spying question, okay, I think it's both. Uh, my sense of it is that she definitely did need money. There's, there's no question. In fact, when, um, again, when this, her handler writes this fascinating letter to the palace, ostensibly to the Khadiv, although probably other people are reading it, but saying, you know, I've got this woman that I really think can help us out. You know, she'll need to be paid. He says, you know, she used to live with her brother, but now she's alone. And she goes around to women's houses trying to sell her books. I'm just thinking, oh my God, you know, this is so amazing. So she really did, she definitely needed money. But I think it was more than that. I think she really liked, she, these reports of hers are amazing. And she writes them with relish. You, you feel like she loves this, you know, and again, which is quite, and she's always kind of showing with the way she writes, she's showing whoever is gonna read these things, how good she is at this spying game. You know, she's almost like saying, you know, look at me, look how, look how well I'm doing this. She is very good. I have to say, she's very good at it, it seems. So I think she really, she really kind of enjoyed it. I don't know if that's the right word, but she found some kind of satisfaction in it. She also, in this, she went over and above what the handler, at least as far as we know, told her. I mean, he would not, I don't think he would have told her as a woman to go, go and visit male journalists, but she did. So we have a number of times where she's reporting, and it's fascinating. She reports on a conversation she has with Rashid Rida. Sitting, she goes to the office of El Manar, and she has this amazing conversation with Rashid Rida about the British. Another time she goes and she talks with one of the editors 
in El Jadida, you know, whether it's what they say it or not, I'm not sure, but it probably is. So she was really quite fearless. She wanted to be out there. She was also a great supporter of Mustafa Kamus, the, the important nationalist leader. And in fact, she was supposed to declaim a poem on behalf of the women of Egypt at his 40 day you know, commemoration after his funeral. That funeral got short circuited because there were just, there was such a crush of people, they apparently couldn't keep it going. So I don't, I think she never actually stood up and declaimed it, but her poem was printed along with all these poems um, by men. So she really, I mean, I think she really felt quite, she very much wanted to be out there in the world and to do these things. And, you know, once she was older, she could get away with it. And she did. But the question is, I mean, did she actually have any kind of, did she feel like, you know, was this an act of loyalty to the Hadith? I mean, did she have political reasons for doing this? I just don't know because it's sort of contradictory because one of the people she's spying on is one of, for instance, is one of Kim's most trusted deputies. And she's basically partly responsible probably for sending him to jail. And he was also a great supporter of women's rights, you know, so it's very, very hard to know what, you know, what are the political investments here? I, I, that is, is a conundrum. I, I want to do some more writing and thinking about those spy reports. I mean, I, I do have a chapter, part of a chapter on them, but I, I think they deserve more attention. Okay. Thank you for a great talk, for Thank a great you. book, on top of your other great books. And let's go celebrate your work at the reception. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.